0: 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13, and I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's Word declares, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letter, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits." But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. And be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Before we get into our text this morning, let's go Lord in prayer. Again, as is our custom, but more than just for custom's sake. It's because time we open God's Word to look into it, we need His help. And so let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. And we pray that these next few minutes might be uh, full. Full of truth and of meaning and uh, full of impact upon our lives. Lord, that we might take to heart um, your truth. And while we look at a passage that maybe at first glance we think is just a lot of historical narrative and information that doesn't apply to us necessarily, but Lord, help us to see beyond that superficial view of your word. We might uh, see what is powerfully presented here for us to engage ourselves in in our corporate worship as a body of saints, as well as in our individual worship. And we praise things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, We are coming to the very end of the book of 1 Corinthians, and so I'm going to have to do a little review. Uh, We just got done with a very powerful verse after a chapter that dealt with the resurrection, the necessity of understanding the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing. There is no hope, there is just silliness that everything we do, whether it be within any religious context of going to church, of singing, of trying to be good people, whatever you want to put under that category of people out there trying to be Christians, without the power of the resurrection, it is pointless. And we have seen that contrast throughout chapter 15 between either you have the power of the resurrection in your life or to call yourself Christian without it is meaningless. It's vain. It's empty, literally, is what the Greek says. You just have an empty faith. You believe in something, but without its power, it does nothing for you. And so we are called to a different kind of belief system that really is available anywhere else in the world for no other religious system contends that its founder uh, rose from the dead, that is alive today, that was God incarnate. All of these things... These cardinal truths of Christianity uh, are the source of its power that differentiates itself from everything else. Now, others have made lip service to that, and Paul certainly is dealing with those in the Corinthian church. Remember, this is not written to the world. This was written to a church, this letter. And within the church, there was already, in these early years, and uh, in fact, Paul had really, uh, just probably about three years earlier, been in Corinth. I mean, it didn't take long for people to start to say, Did the resurrection really happen? You know is that really necessary to believe that? Can't we just be good people without it? Can't we all get along well they couldn't they couldn't even get along with what they were taught from God's Word through Paul, and so we have at the end of this powerful discussion of the resurrection statement that says, because of the resurrection, we should be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor, that is our work for God, is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because He is a living God. And there is a living hope for us. There is an eternity that we will be engaging our Lord with, in either for judgment as our righteous, holy, holy, holy judge, or to reward as our Lord and Savior. One way or the other, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we know that because there's a resurrection not only of Jesus Christ, but of all men, some to eternal judgment, some to eternal life, depending upon what they have done with Jesus Christ, We know that anything we do for Christ, having trusted in Him, is not in vain. It is not empty or worthless. And we look at this, and we have this statement at the end of chapter 15, saying to always abound in the work of the Lord. Now let's look back at who he's talking about. Let's look back at the church that he's trying to challenge to abound, that is to overflow in a work for God. Do not Run out of energy when it comes to serving your Lord. Don't do it. Just keep abounding and do more and find areas where you can even do more. Let's talk about the church that Paul's just said that to. This is a church, if we go back in this same letter to the first few chapters, this is a church that has great division in its midst. I'm a Paul. I'm Apollos. So I'm a Peter. I'm of Jesus. And there they are contending against each other with this infighting and this underswell of, of, of contention within the church and of arrogance to say, I'm a follower of so-and-so and I'm a follower of so-and-so. I hold to what he teaches as if these men all taught different things. And that adherence to one of their doctrines makes you superior to others within your own church. This is that church, Paul has to say, always abound in the work of the Lord. It's time for you to get busy and to deal with those issues of separation, uh, of contention, of of, uh, division. Get to work. Secondly, this is a church that has some moral issues. This is a church that has some severe immorality going on in it Paul says of such a nature that even the world doesn't even talk about it. doesn't mean the world never did it. It's just the world doesn't ever talk about it. It's of that kind of perversion going on in your church. And so he has to spell out the need to exercise discipline against that kind of activity in the church and then to set up a theology. And we talked about theology of singleness and of marriage and of the right place in God's... Uh, Design for the roles of authority that God has given to husbands and, and the role of loving submission that God has given to wives and, and, and within the church and how does that look. And this is a church that was messed up in these moral issues. We then look at what they were doing with the Lord's table with communion and, and the distribution of Christ's body and, and blood symbols there And and they were horribly doing that to the point that many of them were ill and some of them actually died as a result of the carelessness in which they were conducting themselves during this holy time of worship to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is that church. Paul says we should abound in God's work. How could they abound? We then looked at the arrogance that they had, and we had several chapters where we talked about that uh, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Remember that? How many of you still remember that? Okay, don't expect any of our visitors to remember that. But if you've been here for, that, I think it was like three months, that's all you heard just about from here. Knowledge puffs up, but love Edifies. This is the church that was having problems with that. They were walking around with these big heads. I understand something from God's word. Well, whoop-dee-doo. It has nothing to do in your life. Who are you building up? You're puffing yourself up. You are not edifying the saints. You are not serving them. And for chapter after chapter, Paul, by his personal example, by the example of Christ and the other apostles, by his straight Direct instruction to them talks about what true love looks like in the church You're not strutting around saying, "Look at me, I know this and I know that, but rather it's service. It's that I 'm going to empty myself in the lives of others. I 'm going to take those kinds of dynamic risks of pouring out my resources for people who may not be thankful for it, who may not even know that they need it. And from a human perspective, it may seem to make no difference. Yet I'm going to do it. Why? The same reason Jesus Christ came and died on a cross, whether or not you accept Him or not. Because that's what love does. It sacrifices. With no interest, no idea, no expectation of anything in return. And Christ comes, sacrifices himself for all men, that all men might have that opportunity to know Christ, to Savior and Lord, be delivered from their sin, have a sure hope of eternity in his presence. And so this church missed that. This was a, as much as Ephesus is the church of brotherly love, and, and we, we look at that and, and we see the, the wonderful love of Ephesus described there in. Revelation, Um, Corinthians didn't have that. They had lust. They didn't have love. This is the church that Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord always. And we go, how? How could they do that? This is also the church, as we've just seen, that really started to question fundamental doctrines. They were struggling to grasp deep truths and important truths like the resurrection. And Paul corrects them upon that. So we come now to this statement, to a church like this. Paul says so you should always abound in the work of the Lord. That you should stand, be steadfast and immovable. What does that look like? Where does it start? Well, I think chapter 16 is the beginning of what it means for a church in pretty desperate straits that had a lot of problems going on in it, what does it look like to at least begin taking some steps in the right direction of abounding in the work of the Lord? And Paul is going to select something that is probably the least spiritual part of ministry. And yet, it does show some evidence that at least there's some interest in our lives of doing something for God. And that is in the handling of our money. And he comes to chapter 16, verse 20. He says, listen, um, you made a commitment. And that commitment had to do with collecting some money for the saints. This isn't for Paul. This isn't for the church particularly. But for the saints, specifically the ones in Jerusalem who are undergoing a severe famine um, and had some great material financial needs. And the churches there in Greece, as well as Macedonia and Asia Minor, had been taking up collections and making commitments to help the Christian brethren in this, really the root founding area of Christianity, Jerusalem, to help them get through this famine, get through this period of time. And Paul says, okay, here is my first area for you to abound in work don 't confuse this as being right with God, but here 's some evidence here 's some a way for you to tangibly demonstrate that you 're at least somewhat interested in abounding in the work of the lord let 's start off with the commitment that you made prior. You made a financial commitment to the saints in jerusalem i 'm going to be coming through there there uh, later on. Um, you should be taking care of that so that I don't want you to show up and give in front of me. I'm not interested in that. This isn't about, look at me, I'm giving this kind of money. Um, in fact, uh, we want it to be something of a secret. Uh, Paul doesn't care who gives what. He just makes a statement. His statement is, first day of week, each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul says, this isn't going to be about um, grandstanding in front of me Oh, the Apostle Paul, I want to show him how spiritual I am. Here, I'm going to put the money right in his hand. He doesn't want that connection. You take care of it yourselves. Show some responsibility. Show some maturity here in your ministering that you want to abound in the work of the Lord, not for personal glory, not for uh, notoriety among the saints or among the leadership of the saints, but you do it um, yourselves. And when I arrive, I'll take that, that... entire sum they'll represent from your church and i will present it to them and i want you to send one of your people with me to carry it isn't that great how paul lines this all up this is a great testimony to how it should be done in churches how unfortunately it's not done in very many churches today and that is that um, paul says i don't really want to touch this stuff and remember this was his testimony Back earlier chapters that he says, you know, I came to you. I, I'm not asking you for money. He says I worked and earned my own way. I made tents and I sold them, um, and I didn't ask you for a dime. And I wanted to keep that. I had the right to, as your pastor, the the workers worthy of his hire. But I didn't want to exercise that right because I wanted to represent you to show you. To evidence before you what it really looks like to minister when we're relying upon God. And so he calls them to do it this way, in a manner that shows that it is an exercise of godliness, and there's nothing of personal gain in it. Not even of the slightest nature. But yet he wants to make sure that he's accountable too to that church. As well as to the group in Corinthians, or in Jerusalem, sorry. And so he says, I want you to select one of your own to go with me. And if they're going, when I'm going, we'll travel together. Um, but you select someone to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And so we're going to do this in such a manner that it's not done in front of me for my favor, that I don't know who gave what. There's a blindness that Paul wants to maintain to their giving. And I try to maintain that blindness in my ministry um, and my deacons know that, that that's really what I want is I don't want that information. And generally speaking, I don't know who gives what. I know what my family gives. We want that blindness because we want this to be a genuine act of worship and not have some other motive behind it. Nor does Paul want it to influence himself. So someone can say, he's taking sides based upon what goes into the pot. And yes, I have had that accusation brought against me in my tenure here as well as in the other church. Oh, you're taking sides based upon who gives what? I don't know who gives what. And that kind of blows that argument right out of the water, doesn't it? When I don't know. Because what... I want to minister as God's truth. And the benefit of someone to this ministry isn't relevant to that. Because the truth must stand and must be acted upon regardless of the physical realm and what it may cost or not cost the church. And this has been something I've tried to bring into my ministry over the years that I will offer my ministry free of charge. And you guys have heard me that, say that a lot. I don't need to get paid. Um, you guys are generous in paying me, but I don't need to be paid. I didn't come here expecting to be paid. God has taken care of me. And as others have said to my face, you will never be able to feed your family if you do blank. I got to tell you, my family is fat and happy. Okay. And we got more food than we can eat right now in our house. Any of you who need supper, come on over. we get to throw another can in the pot. Or pot, yeah, can in the pot. That's right. You can trust the Lord. And Paul here is not really desiring stuff for himself. He's saying, you've made this commitment. Now, here's an example of an area you can abound in the work of the Lord. And, and when you, Pastor, you said that wasn't a high spiritual plane. And it's not. Um, the fact is that the world responds to those kinds of needs, don't they? Yesterday, we had a few of the teens and some of us adults out there uh, wrapping Christmas presents outside of a store, um, and in a matter of a few hours, we get $360. Were all those people interested in doing something spiritual? No, a few of them did. A few of them did talk to me, and, and uh, at least one lady I conversed with was... You know, right with us, and and uh, very excited about it. Um, but by and large, we also just say, "Oh, you're doing such a good thing." Um, today in the newspaper, this morning, there's a story about what's going on up there in Connecticut, and uh, they show this gymnasium full of toys that people are sending to that community because of the loss of children. I don't understand why you would send toys to families who just lost their children. Um, I don't get that part of it, but uh, they finally just said, stop, please stop. Don't send any more. So it's within the nature of man to respond out of compassion to a need and to give. Um, and that's not something isolated to Christianity Uh, And we see that at work around us. But certainly, if it's within the capacity of the natural man to respond with some compassion and give something of what they have to meet others' uh, dire needs, certainly if it's there in the world, it should be very easily seen and evident in the church. And so Paul says here, on this basis, let's get started on bounding in the work of the Lord. You made a commitment to meet this famine need in Jerusalem. Let's fulfill the commitment. And let's not do it in some highfalutin, look at us, we gave all this money. No, do it in a manner that gives only one person the glory. And that person is Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do in our abounding in the work of the Lord in this area. We don't want it to be to anyone's glory, but to God. That when churches are out here and I get calls, I mean multiple times a week from organizations offering to help us raise money. And every single time I get to say this, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. And we are meeting budget. Why? Well, it's not to my credit. Ultimately, it's really not to your credit. God said He'd meet you. Do it His way; He'll meet your needs. Period. And so, by trusting the Lord, we see the needs met, and we rejoice in them. And yeah, right now I really struggle. I have a we have a sister church up there in Rio Rancho that's struggling in this area. We can't get a pastor to come in for more money than than they should be offering. So we're going to increase the. The pot. We gotta we gotta entice someone into the pulpit. As soon as you need to add ten thousand to the salary to get someone to come be your pastor, the guy that's gonna come who wouldn't come for ten thousand less, you don't want him as your pastor. Because he's there for the money. And the Bible consistently says that if someone's there for the money, he is a false teacher. It's one of their calling cards, if you will. So we don't need to sweeten the pot to get the godly man. And Paul here isn't trying to uh, do that at all. But that's our mentality. And Christ calls us to something very different. To abound in the work of the Lord and in this area I'm going to start doing that and I'm going to honor God with this area of my life and see what God does. The Corinthians do that. We find out in Second Corinthians that they did fulfill that to some degree. We're going to examine that down the road. We then move on to some other practical areas, the second area of ministry for them to abound in. And that begins in verse 5. It says, Now I will come to you when I am passed through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. It sounds repetitive, but apparently they didn't know he was going to be doing this. Um, Paul, on his missionary journeys, typically would, would do a cycle. He would hit towns, share the gospel, establish a church. And then when it was time to start back, what he would do is he would reverse his steps. And he would revisit the churches on his way back. And so, like that, he was in Ephesus. He's going to head back through Macedonia and Greece. Um, It's a lot faster to go from Ephesus to Jerusalem directly. Um, but instead, he realizes the necessity of getting back and checking in with these churches in Brea and Thessalonica and Philippi and then even getting into Greece. And, uh, Greece is, Macedonia today is part of the nation of Greece, but Greece then was a lower section. Athens, Corinth would have been in that vicinity. And so Paul says, listen, I am going to backtrack before I head to Jerusalem. Um, and I am going to visit you. Uh, right now, he's going to describe his time as Ephesus. And we're going to study that next week. It's going to be very exciting as we get to the new year to look at what uh, abundant ministry really looks like. Um, and it's going to be different than what you and I think of today. We think of over, overflowing houses and, or buildings and multiple services and things like that. Paul had a very different idea of what abounding ministry looked like. like. He says, I'm going to visit you. And so I'm passing through Macedonia, and uh, apparently they didn't know that, so he does the parenthetical statement there. Verse 6, And it may be that I will remain, or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll tarry in Ephesus till Pentecost. So, he's lay out his itinerary for you. You might say, well, that's very interesting. And we can look in Acts chapter 19 and 20, and we have that same itinerary that that's in fact what Paul did. And so let's turn there very quickly a few books back in the book of Acts chapter 19. Well, we'll just jump to 20. I don't know if I have to do chapter 19. Chapter 19, he's in Ephesus. And we have that all described. That's where he likely wrote the letter. We come to, um, the end. We come to chapter 20, verse 1, and it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So we have this historical record by Luke that Paul did, in fact, backtrack his way around, revisiting the churches. It says, now when he had gone over that region, encouraged them with many words. So this is their second visit to them on the way back. It says he came to Greece. So he was in Ephesus. He went back across, visited the Macedonian churches, headed down south into Greece and visited that. And it says he stayed there three months. Kind of interesting, huh? And, uh, we're not going to, we're going to look at the rest of verse three. So keep your finger there. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians. What did he want to do? He didn't want to just pass through town. He says, I don't want to just visit you on the way. I didn't want to just spend a night there or a couple of nights there. I wanted to spend a little more time there. He says, I'm hoping to spend the winter with you. And I believe that that winter that Paul is hoping to spend with them correlates to the three months that he spent in Greece. In Acts chapter 20. Verse 3. So he spent, say, there three months. But I want you to look at what happens at the conclusion of his time in Greece on that return trip. In Acts chapter 20, verse 3, it says when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Uh, there was someone who had a plan to kill him. And I believe that happened in Corinth, somewhere in Greece at least, the Jews there had devised a plan to kill this man. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit more next week. But I want you to see his laying out of his itinerary. But I want you to see now what their role was. Are you ready? Back to 1 Corinthians 16. At the end of verse 6 it says, I want to remain with you for three months during the winter. I want to winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. And he's going to do the same thing in the requested of Timothy in verses 10 11, and uh, then also of Apollos, and then also of someone else later on. Essentially, he lays open a door of opportunity for them to demonstrate a willingness to do some work for God. You live in a city of Corinth, which is a passageway. It is... Uh, to use a modern terminology, is Grand Central Station. It is a, it is a, a melting pot of people where you have sailors and goods and, and all this ideas floating around. But you have this key area that people wanting to go from the west heading to the east and, and uh, east to west would travel through Corinth. Paul says you're in a unique situation to provide a service to God's people. And all right, you're not you don't have all your spiritual I's dotted and your T's crossed, and you've got a lot of problems in your church, but let's at least get started in the right direction. Let me help you start understanding how to abound in the work of the ministry, even while you're sorting through the other stuff going on in your church that you need to deal with. The immorality, the division, the the uh, disrespectful way you're doing the communion, the, uh, the doctrinal errors you have, uh, all this stuff. While you're dealing with all that, let me help you look at some ways to abound in the work of the Lord. Number one, fulfill your commitments to the saints. Be generous, be discreet, but be givers. Even the world can have compassion for those suffering. At least show that. Secondly, you have an opportunity to minister to the needs of some of God's men who are traveling through your community. And whether it's Paul, Timothy, Apollos, or anyone else, you have a rich opportunity to provide a service to these men of God who are traveling with the Gospel to send them on their way, to outfit them, to, to provide them lodgings, to, to send them on their way and make sure that they have all the supplies and transportation lined up. You guys are experts at that. It's what Corinth is known for. Do what you're good at. But instead of doing it for yourselves, do it for God's people. He says I'm going to stop by. I'm going to be there for three months, and I'm more than willing. He's already demonstrated that in, in First Corinthians chapter four. He's already done. I'm more than willing to pay my own way, but I want to leave you open an opportunity that if you want to care for my needs and send me on my way, I'm going to give it to you. That this period of time I can be with you in ministry, and you can minister to me. You can minister to Timothy. I'm going to send before me, which he does again in Acts chapter twenty. You can minister to Apollos and any other brethren that come through. But make sure, verse 14, I'm going to jump ahead because I want to get to the punch. Make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing with love. At first, it's about the love of God in your life by trusting in Jesus Christ. And then as recipients of the love of God and of those who are reflecting that love back to him through acts of service, we have love for one another. And again, Paul draws this out. And of course, we have studied First Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and seen it extensively, this calling of God, that we do these things of totally different motives. Not to make ourselves feel good in the holidays, so I want to give to some charity. Not because, um, well, you know, they're relatives, I kind of have to give them lodging. Um, no. Out of godly love, do these things. Abound in the work of the Lord, but make sure, check your motives, that you're doing it with love. And if you don't love these men who are, carrying the gospel these itinerant ministers then don't pretend to because that's not abounding the work of the lord because your motives are suspect but you've got a lot of problems where right now you do have some resources and the first few steps of an attitude change that says i want to serve god is that i'm going to give him my what i do have and i know what i do have i do have and corinth was a very rich community um as any metropolis with that much commerce going on in it would be, um, they had the resources to do these two things that Paul says. While you're working on maturing yourself spiritually, you can at least do these two things. But even these two things have to be done for the right reason. And shame on us if we try to guilt people into doing these things. Because guilt is not the motive that God wants for abounding in His work. Never. The motive that God wants us to do His work in is love. Our love for Him and our love for one another. And i got to tell you, we're good at guilting people and doing what they need to do, aren't we? I'm good at it. My wife's good at it. My mom was a pro at it. Okay? Paul says that's not the right motive, guilt. No, we do it out of love. God's love for us, our love for Him. And because of that right relationship through Jesus Christ, now I can show genuine love horizontally. And here are two ways that we can do so that don't require us to have All our spiritual ducks in a row yet, but just having a desire to move in that direction, here's how we can abound the work of the Lord. Yeah, you're not teaching and preaching. You're not doing these kinds of, you're not doing, um, you know, you're not writing a doctrinal thesis. You're not going through, you're not ready for a lot of other things. But in these two areas, get busy. Show a heart change. And by the way, the Corinthians are going to respond to this. I mean, they're going to respond overwhelmingly to it. So that Paul has to write another letter and says, okay, you can relax a little bit. Of these areas. You, you've, you've done what I've asked you to do. All right. Now we're going to move on and we're going to move into studying 2 Corinthians in a few weeks. Um, but, oh, that we would have the right heart. Now that we have the right heart, well, it takes time to fix the problems we've been seeing in Corinth throughout this study. It takes some time to correct your doctrine and to establish it. It takes some time to correct your worship patterns. It takes some time to heal divisions in the church. It takes time to uh, do these things. But while you're working on correcting what's wrong if you really have a heart that understands the power of the resurrection and the desire to serve the Lord, you can at least do these things of opening your resources. For the Corinthians, they had money. And by the way, we do too. We're, we're, the, we're the rich ones on the planet. And they had the resources to help people in travel. They were travel experts And so that's what Paul says, I'm going to trust in you to do. You're not ready to do a lot, but to demonstrate that you really want to serve the Lord, you need to do something. And if that something is in these areas, it still needs to be done with the right motive. And so is our service to God. It is not that we are earning the right to heaven, for we cannot do that. We cannot undo any sin by doing anything good. It is by receiving the love of God in Christ Jesus, His forgiveness, humbling ourselves before Him, confessing our sin, that we establish the relationship. As we shared last Sunday night, that is an ongoing attitude. And when it is present in genuine divine love is in our life, it will have to express itself in some kind of work of the Lord. And even the messed up Corinthians had ways to abound in the work of the Lord. Paul gives them a couple of opportunities. So you might be sitting here and saying, I'm, I, don't, I, ha- I, don't, I have the same problems the Corinthians do. I have the same problems with arrogance and haughtiness over a little bit of knowledge I have and I don't have that kind of love and I don't want to practice that way. Or maybe it's even issues of immorality and division. I don't get a lot of people. Well, that needs to be corrected and sometimes it takes years to correct some of those issues in your life. But in the meantime, God calls you to serve him. If you're here and you don't know Christ is your savior, this really isn't about you. For first, you must receive the benefit by humbling yourself before a resurrected Savior and make him your Lord. Acknowledging your sin to him and your inability. To remove any of that sin. And trusting in His shed blood. Then we can begin to move. We have this powerful presentation and while we often, too often, just kind of relegate it to, well, this is just the last chapter and He gives us a little itinerary. Oh no, there's much more substance here than that. Here's some ministry you can abound in even the weakest Christian, steeped in some of the biggest problems a church can have, even they, to show a heart's change, can do something for God. And need to. But with the right motive. Not to make the pastor happy. Not to meet the budget of the church. Those are bad motives. But out of your love for God and what He's done for you and your love for one another. Abound. In the work of the Lord. Let's pray.